My name is Lamar Hardwick. I'm a husband, father of three, pastor, scholar, author, an all-around avid reader and lover of all things culture. And in 2014, at the age of 36 years old, I was diagnosed autistic. This is the Autism Pastor Podcast, where we discuss all things culture, politics, faith, religion, and theology, all through the lens of someone loving, learning, leading, while living with a disability. Welcome to the Autism Pastor Podcast. This is Lamar Hardwick, and you are listening to the Autism Pastor Podcast. We're still in our series on ableism and racism in American history. And next week, we'll return back to that discussion with a look at pro-slavery advocate and progenitor of the positive good theory, George Fitzhugh, and how he helped lead a movement that used disability as a vehicle to justify racial slavery. But for now, I have a special treat for you. So this is season two, episode four, a conversation with Amy Kinney. Amy Kinney is a disabled scholar and Shakespeare lecturer who hates Hamlet. She serves on the mayor's diversity, equity and inclusion tax force in her home city, coordinates support for people experiencing homelessness, homelessness in her neighborhood and is currently co-launching Jubilee Homes OC, a permanent supportive housing initiative in her local community. She is a scribe for Freedom Road Institute and believes that every human is an image bearer worthy of belonging. You can find her cruising on her scooter, Diana, Princess of My Scooter, named after Wonder Woman, reading or in the water where she'd always rather be. Friends call her a minimalist, and while it's true that her walls are empty, her life is full of riotous laughter, usually until she tears up or snorts, whichever comes first. She's never met a pie she didn't like, and her love language is jalapenos. This conversation between Amy and I was hosted by Baker Books, and the video of our conversation is available on their YouTube channel. So let's go into this conversation I had with Dr. Amy Kinney about her brand new book, My Body is Not a Prayer Request. Let me say... um I, I am super excited. Like I am a huge fan uh, of your work, and I'm a huge fan of this book. Um, I, I was glad I got it in advance copy and was able to read it. And I think one of the things I first tweeted out was um, I was only two chapters in, and the book was just amazing. And I think I think a direct quote that I tweeted about it was this book is I wish I could write that good, good. <laughs> and so um, thank you for this work as an author. I know that writing um, is a labor of love, but it also requires a huge amount of transparency and vulnerability. Uh, and so I so appreciate your stories and the things that you shared. Um, so. I had one question that uh, I wanted to ask you, and I know this has been something that has resonated with a lot of people other than me, and, and that is the title. My body is not a prayer request. I love the title. Like it speaks 
very prophetically to me. Um, and as an author, I know that we kind of go around in circles thinking about what are we going to call the book? Uh, and so if you don't mind me asking, how did you come? Well, it's a two-part question. How did you come to uh, land on that title? And in the process, were there any other titles you were sort of thinking of um, to title the book? Yeah, well, thank you, Lama, for those kind words about my book. And thank you for paving the way with your book. Um, the title, My Body is Not a Prayer Request, Credit goes to the Brazos team for um, coming up with that alongside a sample chapter that I had given them in which I said that my body is not your metaphor, that it, my lame leg doesn't give you permission to use me for anything you find cheesy or undesirable. And so from there, um, my body is not a prayer request was launched. Initially, I had thought about calling it Holy Cryptures as a play on scriptures and crypt theology. And I think that just was kind of more confusing to anyone than it was helpful. So the title that we went with, I think is also a really loving clapback to how many people do approach me without even really thinking about it, wanting to pray me away, wanting to change um, my disability because they have a sense of that being included in some sort of curing narrative. Mm. Yeah. I, I wonder if, if it's appropriate to say, and I think you share some stories in the, in the book um, for those who haven't read it, definitely get it. Um, but, but would it, would it be okay? Would it be appropriate for me to ask you to share a little bit more about that as far as um, your experience, but also in general, the experience that most disabled people have with people, I think you said in the book that, that people assuming that our bodies are public property. Yeah. Um, yeah. Can you say more about that? Yeah. I think that our bodies become public property in this sense of people thinking that they have the right to touch me without my consent. People, if I'm using a manual wheelchair, will push me from one side of the room to the other they will lean on my mobility scooter or take my cane out of its holster and twirl it around and play with it or wow. joke, look, I should get a top hat as though these are toys or accessories that aren't aiding in my very mobility. They will lay hands on me to pray for me without asking permission. And often when they do ask permission, they won't listen when I say, no, thanks. I already know Jesus, the disabled Christ. I'm not ashamed of being disabled. I've been held down before to receive curative prayers. Uh, people have tried to do exorcisms before on me. Oh. And I think people have made me potions and remedies. And I even kind of make that a joke in the book of top 10 remedies that I've received mm -hmm. from people, just because you have to laugh to kind of get through it. Otherwise you're just crying all the time. Absolutely. And I think that's a window into my everyday experience and the everyday experience of many of us who are disabled that most non-disabled people don't really ever have to think about. Mm -hmm. Most yeah. disabled people are shocked when they hear that people are coming up to me and praying all the time, or just telling me what sin is preventing you from getting up and walking when I'm using a mobility mm -hmm. scooter that's really harmful to receive from people who are part of the body of Christ. 
And I think a lot about that idea of, you know, we're all one body and you can't treat members as disposable. The non-disabled body parts can't say to the disabled body parts, I have no need of you. We're all in this together. Yeah. Thanks. I, um, you know, when I, when I think about your experience, of course, um, one of the challenges with disability and, and disability theology and justice is that um, the word itself seems to, is an attempting to encompass a variety of different experiences. So uh, I try to be mindful of trying not to flatten or contour disability that is so that it's one experience, right? Um, but in the same token, I think about um, having an experience myself where a person had a real struggle and confronted me about, um, quote unquote, labeling myself autistic and why I was my page, autism pastor. Um, why would I limit myself that way? Um, I seem to be doing fine. God has healed me from that. Why would I keep talking about that? And the most glaring challenge that this person presented me with was the idea that um, I'm autistic and a pastor. And one of the things I said was, well, I think that's only a problem if you think those two things don't go together. Right. Right. Um, So that with that being said, it led to an entire conversation about how my particular experience has actually added to my faith and to my understanding of scripture. Um, so, so maybe even as you talk about more, a little bit about the book for those who haven't read it so that they can be encouraged to go get it. And again, I'm encouraging people to go and get it. I actually have two copies. <laughs> get both um, of our books. They're friends. They can be friends on your shelf. Definitely buy Lamar's book too. Definitely. They can be friends, but what, what, what would you say? Um, in similar fashion to me sharing that my particular disability and how I experienced it has actually added to my faith and my understanding of scripture. Um, what, what would you like to share is as a part of that being a part of your experience? Um, of course, we're, we're both different, but I think that's one of the things that comes across in your book is that it does add um, to our understanding of God and the understanding of scripture. Yeah. Yeah. I, I picture the resurrected body of Jesus and how it is scarred, wounded and beautifully disabled and how that is the only example of the imperishable form that we have. And it's a disabled body. And that's really important because there's no need for me to be ashamed of being disabled when my body reveals the crucified Christ to the world. Mm -hmm. And I think too about how we have erased so many disabilities in scripture, everyone from Jacob to Paul, to Moses, to Isaac, their disabilities aren't deterrents. They're not a lack. They are at the forefront of the work that God is choosing to do with humanity. And so why would we presume that would be any different for our generations? Why would we presume that disability would be somehow a loss and not a gain? So it just never makes sense to me to think about 
I'm supposed to feel sad or bad about my disabled body when it can reveal Jesus to others. Yeah, so beautifully put. So I have to say this because we were having a great conversation before we got on, um, particularly about um, Jesus, this disabled God. And of course, you and I both know that Nancy Eastland, the late Nancy Eastland, I wrote a terrific book called The Disabled God, and it is a seminal text for disability theology. Um, But even in your answer, you talked about uh, Jesus being disabled. So in your opinion, why do you think that that's something that has been lost? I know that's been a theme uh, even in your book about the church has forgotten that we serve a disabled God. From your perspective or your opinion, why do you think that has been lost or erased uh, in the practice of our faith, particularly here in the West? Ableism, Hmm. fear of disabled people, fear of becoming disabled themselves. I think about the passage where Jesus tells Thomas, put your hand in my side, look at my scars, blessed are those who have seen and believed, but blessed are those who don't see and believe. And I talk about people doubting my disability and accosting me about being disabled as being a type of Thomas and and continuing to question whether those of us who are disabled are trying hard enough to not be disabled. And I think there's so much fear there around this idea that if Jesus is disabled, as the text shows him to be, then what does that mean for disabled folks now? And I think there's an invitation there as well to really have a meeting with ourselves and recognize that some of the disparaging ideas that we have about disability are really from ableism. We can't blame those on the Bible. Mm-hmm. So true. Yeah. Yeah. And we're, like I said, we're having a fascinating discussion um, even before we got on and that's what I so appreciated about uh, your work is about bringing that back to a central point of discussion for the church. Um, and I even mentioned to you that one of the things that I think um, we were really challenged with is there, you see this slow erasure of this idea that Jesus was disabled. And so, um, you know, reading the text, literally like most people um lay a claim to their relationship with the bible as one that we read it literally and yet that seems to be a place where when we get to that part we tend to want to you know back out of reading it literally and and say that well they were just wounds or they were just scars um but as you stated they jesus invited thomas to put his and inside of the wound that was still there. And so I made a comment, uh, maybe you can, you can add to this, that one of the things that I, one of the reasons why I think there's a slow erasure in addition to what you said is that we don't want to see Jesus that way. We don't, we don't want to see God that way, right? And so what I contend is that we're so ableist that we even discriminate against God. Right. We yeah. we've tried to heal Jesus because we don't like to see Jesus that way. Um, so so what but you know, what does that say about us and what does it say about how deep this thing called ableism, which some people are aware of, but I'm 
I'm finding out more and more that people are not necessarily aware of what ableism is and what it means. And you, I know you talk about it significantly in the book. So, so do you, can you give a sort of a working definition of that for those who are in the church who's never really encountered that term? Yeah, ableism is the idea that that some bodies and minds are better than others. And we see that that connects to discrimination against disabled people because it says that non-disabled body minds are better than disabled body minds. It also connects to racism, misogyny, fat phobia, um, transphobia, the way that we are thinking about a hierarchy of humanity and that some people are worthy of dignity and care more than other people. And I think it's also really connected to our ideas of productivity mm-hmm. and the way that a lot of times here in the States, the more that you produce, the more that you are considered worthy or somehow um, strong. And I think that's very much connected to these ideas of disabled people not being worthy or not being somehow capable or competent because it says that we can't produce anything that the capitalist market deems worthy. And so, and we can't keep up with that. So therefore we are not fully human or we are not worth what other humans are worth. And that's definitely connected also to this idea of erasing Jesus's disability because we want to see strength in a really particular way that is Mm -hmm. physical strength and that is producing and that is um, not connected to anything that we deem broken or weak. Mm. We say when we partake of the Lord's table, this is my body broken for you. Mm -hmm. But bodies that we deem broken, disabled body minds, we, we can't connect that to a practice that many of us do weekly or monthly together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is so significant. I'm glad you brought in uh, communion uh, or the the Eucharist, right? Because this is a tradition that Jesus asks us to carry on, right? And he attached a new meaning to the Passover meal. And he does say like, this is my body that was broken for you. Um, and in some ways, you know, we would have to concede that when he's saying that it was done for us, that this is a, I don't know. So I, maybe I'm going out on a limb here, but to say that that's, that's a gift, right. Um, to his body called the church. Um, so, so I wonder if, if we could see things through, um, through that lens, like this is, this is a gift, um, or, or at least comes with gifts. Um, if, if we use that lens, what, what would the conversation look like to try to help shift the church's mindset from persons with disabilities being liabilities and persons with dis- to shifting that discussion to persons with disabilities, disabled people being those who are, are actually gifts to the church in some ways um, because they add some things to the church, just as Jesus says, this brokenness was given to you. This is a gift. Um, so, so sort of in your holy imagination, um, what would it look like to help shift that conversation from seeing 
people with who are disabled as liabilities to seeing them as gifts that are given um, for the strengthening and the building of, of the church. Yeah, I think it's before when you mentioned that the title of my book is prophetic, I think our very body minds are prophetic being disabled. I think we have the prophetic gifts to share with the church about what actually doesn't work for anyone, but doesn't work most of all for us. So these ideas of um, really knowing that we are all made in God's image, and that is not dependent on our body minds working in a particular way. And I think many churches and many Jesus followers would say that, but then they don't actually really practice that when it comes to thinking about disabled folks as less than. Being disabled has given me the gift of knowing my limits. I am not God. I am, I am human and I have real access needs and real limits that I cannot pretend do not exist. And I think a lot of people who are non-disabled can kind of fool themselves and others for a little bit longer into thinking that they are independent mm -hmm. and that they are self-made, that they are self-reliant and that they don't need God and community. So I think one of the gifts that disability gives us is helping us understand that we are all beautifully interdependent on one another, on God, on the community of creation that surrounds us. And it gives us some images and some ideas of how that isn't a liability or something to be ashamed of. That's actually a gift that we get to give one another regularly when we're in community with one another and when we bear one another's burdens. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. It makes me think so much of the fact that I think a large part of the challenge is that is, is what you said is that we have placed rugged independence at the center of what it means to be quote unquote human. And we try to, or we have created a narrative around humanity's goal being climbing to some sort of ascension to rugged independence. And therefore that makes us, um, not only more worthy, but it makes us more godly in some ways, right? Yeah. At least that's what we've told ourselves, which then automatically positions disabled people at an extreme disadvantage because then um, we're sort of always looked at as those who are who are dependent when in fact, I don't know that any of the creation narrative suggests that humanity was ever designed to be independent. And, and what I tell people is, is that even just re reading the creation narrative, right there, there, you can read into it all sort of accommodations that God has to make for, for humanity. As a matter of fact, I've shared this before out of all the things that God created, um, human beings seem to be from their birth, the most dependent creatures <laughs> on the earth, right? Like we don't, yeah. we are not, a, we have mobility challenges when we're born. Other creatures can walk right away. Um, there are even species that don't even need parental supervision once they're born. Like the parents have the, the child and they leave the child and the child is, is, is fully independent. Right. And yet somehow we, <laughs> we have tricked ourselves into thinking that 
you know, part of our story of faith and part of our story of quote unquote, being more godly is to ascend to this notion that we should be ruggedly independent. Um, and I, and I just don't see that. Like when we see how, if, if we read the creation stories and we take those seriously, I don't see how we can come away with this fact that we're not interdependent, right? The, the fact that the trees um, and the environment create the oxygen that is needed for humanity to survive, right? Uh, is an accommodation that God makes for, for his creation to be able to live. So, so independence is never the goal. And I think that's what sort of trips us up. The other thing I think about quickly is um, when you talk about the, the, the way that disability can add the gifts of understanding interdependence and understanding limits. I think of Paul, right. Who you said that we've also erased his disability in his talking about his thorn, um, and, you know, there's various debates. I, we know that Paul had visual impairment because in Galatians, he says that there are people who are so kind to him that they would have given him their eyes if they could. So if nothing else, we know that. But I think he had several other disabilities uh, along with that. But he says in, in one of our favorite verses, right, he says to keep me from becoming conceited. I was given this thorn. And what I like to tell people is it's interesting that Paul never says that the thorn stopped him from becoming the best version of himself. He actually says that his thorn or his disability is what actually stopped him from becoming the worst version of himself. Somebody who honestly believes that they're completely independent or, or conceited. Right. And I think what you say is so powerful because that is one of the gifts that I know that I continue to walk with is I, I do have some access needs and support needs. But when I was diagnosed at age 36 as autistic for the first time, and you said this word, for the first time, I actually felt human, that I wasn't weird or weak or all the ways that I was characterized up until that time, because I could now acknowledge that I need help and I didn't have to feel wrong for, for needing help and needing um, my fellow brothers and sisters to come alongside me. So uh, I'm thankful that, that not only do you speak about that, but you write about that in the book. Um, Before we go to some questions, I I wanted to get your thoughts on, on this. Um, what, what would you hope for um, in the church community that's wanting to practice better disability inclusion? Yeah, I think about that accessible great banquet in Luke 14 that we both talk about in our books and that I think is, is dear to both of us. Jesus is giving us this image of eschatology or thinking with us about what new creation looks like. And the image that Jesus gives is one where poor and disabled people are invited first, where they are receiving some sort of accommodations or their access needs are being met. There's no talk of cure. There's no talk of condemnation. There's only community. And I think, you know, if we want to, there's 
people who will always kind of say back to me, oh, but that's just figuratively disabled. You know, mm. Jesus isn't talking about people who are actually disabled there. But I think, again, that idea that we are trying to create God and create heaven in our own image. We're putting what we value there, strength, physical, non-disability. Uh, we're thinking about wealth and we want it to look a certain way. If you can't imagine heaven without disabled people, then Jesus can't be there. And that's not really a heaven that I want to be a part of. And so I would hope that churches would take these conversations and the, the stories in our books seriously, that they would receive them with openness instead of with a defensive posture, and that they would be invited to really practice what Jesus is preaching there, which is to create accessible banquets and have those without cure or condemnation, but to focus more on community. Mm. What would be your hope for churches that are trying to practice disability inclusion? Yeah, I, I, a lot of the same. Um, I think for me, one of the big things that has surfaced over my years of, of doing this work is, is to hope for a legitimate um, valued space at leadership tables within the church. Um, and and I'll, I say that because a, a large part of how society in general, but the church specifically has been created was because there were essentially the same types of minds and bodies that kind of sat around and decided this is what good church looks like. Um, and as a result of not having disabled people at the table and as a result of not having them there to be real um, leaders and not in a tokenized way, but having a valid perspective and not just there to teach about disability, right? It, I yes. think that's another thing that we have to <laughs> overcome, right? Um, we can certainly, see multitudes. Exactly, right? I, you know, we can teach about other things too. There's a <laughs> lot of there's a lot of experience um, there, but but I think my hope would be is is to recognize that one of the reasons why it's so tough for churches to be more inclusive of the disabled is because most of how we've created and conceptualized church was done at the risk of excluding those voices. And so anytime you create anything where there are voices that have not been consulted, that particular community of voices that you've excluded will, will, uh, have to deal with the repercussions of that. And that is they don't have access. And so I think for me, one of the biggest hopes would be first to understand that um, there, there is a, a wealth of experience and knowledge um, that disabled people bring to the church that is not being maximized. And I tell pastors that you know, your church at best is only half as good as it could be until you put some disabled people in real positions of leadership, not tokenized positions, and allow them to speak prophetically into the areas where the church can do better 
and they'll help you to be able to become more inclusive. So for me, I, I think that's at the top of my list because until that happens, we're going to continue to hope, right? But but we need them to hear as well the the voices and the experiences of of persons with disabilities and say, look, we have a lot to bring to the table and we can help to to change things, but it can't just be um, acts of charity, right? It has to be a an ethos of equality. Yeah. And I think that will turn turn the tide just a little bit. Um, so that yeah, that that's my hopes for churches who want to really practice this thing and not just uh, dream about it, but actually to do something about it. Yeah. Following our lead, you know, reading our books, asking us to come and speak, having disabled pastors, elders, deacons, and making sure that their voices are heard and actually followed instead of like you're saying, tokenized. I Mm -hmm. often get from students, I didn't know that teachers could be disabled or you're my first disabled professor. And while that's well-intended, really what that's saying is that disabled people are not seen as leaders and teachers Mm. and people worth following. And what if we could not be everyone's first disabled teacher, but instead create space for many disabled people of a variety of different disabilities to be leading. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's also part of the church's obligation and responsibility. You know, as we were talking a little bit before we came on live and we talked about some of the history, um, particularly in the West where the church, um, you know, that early Puritan theology that actually heavily influenced how society itself was structured and you you see the ableism not just in the church but in society with the understanding that the, the church and early puritan theology is is really a, a huge influence on the reason why even persons you know disabled people in society are not treated well um and so i think it's also helping us to understand that part of our obligation and our responsibility is, is to have the undertaking of undoing some of the harmful things that not only we've, we've taught in the church, but because for the first several hundred years of, of nation forming, it followed what the church was teaching at the time. And I think we're still living with the, with the residue of that. So we have an obligation not to just straighten out the church, so to speak, but to use the influence that we have to undo some of the harmful ways that we've, some of the harmful narratives that we told about persons with disabilities that society has caught on that actually came from the church. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So should we take some questions maybe? Yeah, that would be great. Um, so there's there are a couple in the Q and A, but I did catch one in the actual chat that I thought was interesting, and it says, "Do we know that Jesus isn't completely healed once he ascended?" 
I think that's a question for you to talk about what you say about the lion and the lamb in your book, because I think that's one of the passages that I really resonated with and stuck with me long after I read it. Yeah, so I, I would say a couple of things about that. Um, if if we do take um, now, you know, we know Revelation is hugely allegorical and there's lots of symbolism and imagery, but we still can't escape um, the writings that talk about Jesus as being the lamb that was mortally wounded. I'm paraphrasing the lamb that was mortally wounded yet still standing. And so that's actually a play on words that alludes to the fact that the same body in which Jesus chose to retain is still present uh, in the afterlife, at least in revelation. And he's standing before the throne and John the Revelator says that that this this body that was mortally wounded that has absorbed um, wounds that actually were fatal that body still exists in the same form and yet the beautiful image is that yet Jesus is still found worthy to open the scrolls right so there's this sense of of value and worthiness that is is tied to the fact that he chooses to retain um, that body. So the, the other thing I'll say about that, and then you can add if you choose to or not, but it's, it's interesting that um, Jesus, who is God, has a supernatural ability to reverse death. Like, that's wild. <laughs> and he reverses death, but he retains disability, which is a choice that Jesus consciously makes. And not only does he have the supernatural ability to reverse death, he chooses to retain disability and he chooses to post-resurrection make those disabling marks how he will be identified for eternity, which I think because Christianity is largely built on the idea of the incarnation, right? God assumes a body we have to pay particular attention to what God decides to do with the body that God inhabits in Jesus. And that intentional choice of using all the supernatural ability to reverse death yet retain disability is one that we have to pay attention to. And we see that found in revelation. And I think, um, you know, for anyone who's certainly trying to work through that, uh, pay attention Pay attention to what Jesus decides to intentionally do with his body post-resurrection and what he intentionally decides to do with disability and in ways in which he uses that as a primary way to identify him post-resurrection. Um, so, so that would be my answer to that, that we can find that in Revelation. But it's more important to know that that's a, a choice, right, that yeah. Jesus made. Um, yeah, it's no accident that someone who can take on the powers and principalities and death itself, that it's not just happenstance that he remains disabled. And I think too about Revelation 7, when we're picturing everyone in this eternal worship service, and it is every tongue and nation and culture, disability is a culture. We have our own languages, we have our own practices and heroes and history and norms. So even just inviting people to think about, 
I picture disabled folks in that Revelation 7 image of what the eternal worship looks like because we mm-hmm. are our own culture. Yeah. And that's so important too. That that's actually what has helped me to build my uh, theology of disability is that it's very clear that the distinctions and how people were identified in their earthly bodies, um, those things remain um, because you see it every tribe, every nation, every tongue. We see Jesus, uh, the body that Jesus inhabits, re- remaining the same way. Which which this is not a question, but I think we're kind of adjacent to it. And that is, and you talk about this in your book about disability in heaven. Like people have a lot of ideas about that. And I know I certainly have my own ideas, but um, if you just share quickly from, cause you talk about this in the book and I appreciate your take on it. Um, could you share since, since we've kind of teetered on the edge of that, could you share a little bit of your thoughts on that? Yeah, I am often the recipient of a poem called No Wheelchairs in Heaven that strangers and soon-to-be strangers give me. And I think they mean it to be comforting, but it's not really that comforting to receive that poem or for people to sing songs that talk about There's one um, in particular that says that there'll be no lame in heaven because in Jesus's presence will be healed and whole. I am healed. I have already received the transformative power of Jesus. I don't need my body to conform to the world's standards of what curing or healing looks like in order to be healed. So I land in a place of why does it matter so much to you? Like, why is it, you know, I'm not, I'm not here to argue. We'll definitely all be disabled in heaven. As we've said, Disability is not a monolith. It's a broad constellation of body, minds, and experiences. But I do really want to push back with the question of why is it so important that we are not, unless mm-hmm. what we are worshiping is this idol of the non-disabled body. Yeah. Yeah, I, I kind of land in the same place. I, I go there in my book, and then I end up just saying, look, I'm not telling you what to think. I just want you to think. And for me, it's because, you know, I think we will all agree that heaven is is what Christians would believe as the ideal sacred space. Even even people who are not Christians, heaven is synonymous with ideal space. People will say something feels like heaven or it, it looks like heaven. And the question I have is, is similar to yours is if in our imaginations of the ideal sacred space, that space is void of disabled bodies then it has profound implications on how we try to replicate sacred space here, i.e. our churches. And so if I, if I close my eyes and I envision heaven and I don't envision disabled bodies at all, it's no wonder why we have a hard time inviting disabled bodies into what we call sacred space here, because in our ideal situation, it doesn't include disabled bodies. And that's so much of what I think is, part of the church's struggle. Uh, and so I, you know, I say in my book, my question similar to yours would be, if if we do believe that, is it because being non-disabled is a reward or is it a requirement to be in God's presence for eternity, right? So either way, you have to really think about why do I so not want that to be the case when I get to heaven? Is the, Am I being rewarded for being good? 
<laughs> or is it a requirement that God can't stand to be around disabled people? So in order to be in his presence eternally, we have to get a new body. Um, so that's something that I think is worth at least people exploring and, and asking, why is that, like you said, why is that so important? Um, th there's another question in the chat that was specifically uh, asked of you, and it is, what was the turning point to inspire you to write your book? And why is the Christian community your target audience? And spoiler, I'm going to turn it back on you when I'm done answering the Christian community is my target audience because we have a lot of work to do. And because as we've been talking about, it is often in the church and with fellow Christians that I have experienced the worst types of ableism. Mm -hmm. And I've experienced academic discrimination and housing um, problems in terms of being disabled. I am regularly the recipient of people's curative prayers just out and about or people's remedies that they recommend to me. But I think it stings a little bit different when it comes from fellow Christians, because we are all meant to be one body. And we, as we've been talking about, worship a disabled God. And I think it really matters that that is erased in most people's imaginations. And I also think that there's such a different vision that I have for the church, being able to worship together in a community that looks more like that accessible great banquet. And that matters really deeply to me. And I think that it's important for us to name where the church has gone wrong and to try to do what we can to practice a more inclusive way. How about you? Why is the church your target audience in your book? Uh, I mean, lots of reasons. I, I grew up a PK, for those who know what that means, preacher's kid or pastor's kid. Um, so the church has been a part of my life ever since I can remember. Um, I actually tell a story uh, in my first book uh, about um, not being able to, to take communion. And it was in a debate about who was eligible to take the Eucharist, baptized or not baptized, right? But my point was, is that in that moment, even though I hadn't been diagnosed, I knew I was different because the church and the world treated me different. Um, and in that moment of being rejected from the opportunity to, to be at the table, it for me confirmed at least at the time that I was so different that even God didn't want to have anything to do with me. And so um, part of my mission and the reason why the church has been a target audience is, is similar to yours is that the church has been one of the spaces where there's been the most hurt. And, and maybe it's because I don't know that people in church are, are that different from how society treats disabled people is just, I have a higher expectation. Yeah. And so I, I don't expect that I should have to be made to feel that way in a place where, as you said, you know, there's all sorts of disability in the Bible. Jesus is disabled. Like it shouldn't happen there. And so part of it is personal. Um, and it's also personal because I'm a pastor. I've been a pastor for over 20 years um, part of that time being before I was diagnosed, even though I had tremendous struggles with 
the church. I bounced around from church to church, denomination to denomination, because I just couldn't fit in, even though I had this overwhelming urge to fulfill my call. And it's like the church was because I was not socially acceptable and I was socially awkward and I didn't understand body language and social cues and church being a highly social place. Uh, I, I just didn't fare well. And yet I am asking the church for permission to pursue this divine call on my life. And the church, which I was seeking to serve, was the primary obstacle to me being able to, to pursue what I felt like God was calling me to do. And so it's it's personal for me. And I don't want anyone else to have to struggle with that in ways that, you know, you and I and many other disabled people have had to struggle with it. You know, I think what's important for people to remember is that um, disabled people who, who want to follow Jesus also have a right as a Christian to belong to a faith community that is safe, but also to a faith community that allows them to be fruitful in whatever capacity that looks like for them. And so the church shouldn't be the place that actually stops you from serving Jesus. And that has become <laughs> one, one of the things. Yeah. that And it, it, it was profoundly personal for me. Like, why is the church the hardest place for me to be accepted in the message that they're sharing with me that I should follow Jesus and I should serve him, but not you because you're disabled. And so it, it is, I will admit it is, is personal yeah. uh, for me. Yeah. And that God takes credit for disability and then extends accommodation to Moses. Mm, and that's yeah. what should happen when we are trying to fulfill the call of being faithful to mm. loving our neighbor, to loving God, to serving the church we both love the church and want it to be a place that we haven't yet experienced. Yeah, I totally agree. A hundred percent. Trying to scroll through here. Um, how about this one? How do you deal with church leadership and influential members who gatekeep the finances and the culture necessary to shift from anti-ableist theologies that is a, it's a really good question I, i'll let you take a shot at it if you want to i have some ideas i think that one individual can make a lot of change in a church community that it's not always up to church leadership or influential members although i hope that they would be on board yes I think even doing something as small as starting a book group to read disability theology, work through revising your own language and practices in your small group or Bible study or in your sphere of influence, that can have a mm -hmm. tremendous impact on disabled people feeling more welcomed when words are used that aren't ableist slurs. Practicing what you're asking church leadership and influential people to do so if you are asking for things to be made more accessible, are there ways that you can set up a sensory room, bring in a portable ramp, create, um, you know, handouts with, for those who are blind or with visual impairments? Mm -hmm. I think sometimes we rely on this hierarchy and it coming top down and we can actually be the change 
all within our community, even small changes make a huge difference. What would yeah, you say I, to that? I, I would agree. That was one of the things that I um, began to notice um, in speaking at various disability ministry conferences over the years. It's actually sort of the impetus for writing this book that I just wrote um, is because I would see, I should back up. It's, it's the reason why I wrote the book the way I did um, is because I would see great people who um, like many of the people asking questions had a heart and a passion, but I very rarely saw like lead pastors, senior leadership, people who were making decisions. And so one of the reasons why I wrote the book the way I did is because I wanted it to be grassroots. Um, you know, a lot of times we want to speak, as you said, from the top down. And I thought, you know, there are a lot of people who are coming here. If I could just give them a resource that's accessible, it's not too lofty. It's not, uh, it has enough scholarship in it that it will interest a pastor. But a lot of people who are reading my book are people who are not making the decisions in their church, but they're reading it and they're able to talk about it in a way that peaks the leadership's interest. So, so I would agree that um, sometimes it takes a, a grassroots effort um, and to start with doing the things that are within your control to be able to do, like you said, book clubs, um, starting small groups that address the real needs of disabled people. And so if, if one of the primary ways that your church tries to disciple people and um, to help them get rooted in the life of the church, then take those opportunities to actually figure out how you can actually serve some of the real needs, not just throwing scriptures at them and praying for their healing and those types of things that we talked about, but what are some of the real accessibility needs that they have and how can even your small group within the church help meet those needs and, and start from there. Um, and, and what I found is that if enough people um, are beginning to move in a certain direction, it will require the attention of, of the leaders. So, and then the other thing that I actually encourage uh, disabled people and their families to do is Let's not let the church off the hook anymore. A large part of why the church has not been as accommodating as it should be is because, and I, and I understand, is it has been so ableist and so inaccessible that disabled people just stay away from the church altogether. Um, but I contend that as a, as a Christian, the church is your birthright as well. And so show up, show up and, and you know, to a, to a faith community that is healthy and open enough and perceptive enough. Um, so I don't advocate for you going to spaces that are not safe uh, for you emotionally, spiritually, mentally. But I do think that we should not let the church off the hook. And one thing that we've seen um, through this global pandemic, and I've preached about it in my own church, um, we've kind of sort of um, answered questions about it when certain clergy were calling for removing online as an option. And here's what we learned when 
accessibility became an issue for able-bodied people, the church got very creative and the church found money <laughs> that it said it didn't have. And it did a lot of creative things to make sure that people who are, were not able to access their buildings and their programming during uh, the pandemic, which is not over, by the way, <laughs> um, they found a way to, to make it accessible. And what I challenge the church is to say that the disability community is watching. And what we have shown them is that it could have been done all along. And so the reason why I'm saying let's not let the church off the hook is um, the church has been exposed. It, it, the church can do whatever is necessary to be done. Um, but I think sometimes the, the decades of us staying away for our own good sometimes has allowed the church to sort of rest on its own laurels and say, well, they're not here, so we don't have to. So I would encourage people to show up and, and make it uh, an issue that has to be addressed. We can't let the church off the hook anymore. Yeah. What we spend our money on reveals our priorities. And absolutely. Jesus has a lot to say about our money. A lot. Um, <laughs> and I, and I <laughs> thank you for saying that. Uh, I, and, you know, we can't get to all the questions. And so, um, you know, we'll try to, if it's possible, um, to maybe address some of those that are on Facebook at a later time. But I'll sort of end with this because you talked about money. <laughs> One of the things that I've challenged, not just churches, but my church and everywhere that I've served is, you know, Jesus does have a lot to say about that. And One of the things that I think we forget that you just said is that he says, wherever your treasure is, your heart will be also. Right. And so I say it in this way that heart follows treasure. And in saying that, as I challenge churches to say, you can actually dictate where your heart goes. And if accessibility and, and the work of uh, being anti ableist in your church is something that you want, even though you don't know how to do it and it's a challenge, start putting your money there because your heart will follow your treasure. And so I tell people things that I want to love and things that I want to be passionate about, I start investing in that. And slowly and surely my heart follows where I've invested my time and my money and I become passionate about it and I become more loving and I become more uh, inclusive. And so I think if, if the church is waiting to get a feel, a feeling, it might not come. But if you can make a decision and a commitment and start by putting resources behind it in the same way that we have seen it being done during the pandemic, then eventually, if Jesus, if what Jesus says is true, which I believe it is, your heart will follow that and you will see the passion and you will see, um, you know, the, the, the things that are needed heart wise for those changes to be made. But don't wait until you feel it in your heart. Start putting the money there so your heart will follow that. So that would be my advice to, to churches and leaders. Yeah. And we are worth the cost of inclusion. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. Hey, thanks for joining us for this episode of the Autism Pastor Podcast. 
Remember, this conversation between Amy and I was originally recorded and hosted by Baker House Books, and you can find the video of that conversation on their YouTube channel. You can find Amy on Twitter at Dr. Amy Kenny, and also you can find her on her website, amy-kenny.com. Remember, please go out and purchase her book, My Body is Not a Prayer Request, Disability Justice and the church which is an absolutely uh, fabulous book again as always if you have enjoyed this episode of the autism pastor podcast i want to encourage you to go to wherever you get your podcasts and leave a positive review uh, and rate our podcast and share it with a friend uh, and let them know that you're enjoying these episodes next week we'll be back as we pick up on our series of episodes about racism and ableism in American history. But until that time, enjoy your week and we'll see you back next week on the Autism Pastor Podcast.